0: Well, morning everybody, good to be with you. Again, my name's Brandon, I'm one of the pastors here at River City. If you are new, a special welcome to you. Maybe if you're a college student, especially welcome. Good to have you guys. Uh, two weeks ago, we began a series uh, looking at the books of First and Second Peter. And uh, we saw that the books of 1 and 2 Peter are letters that are being written to Christians who are living in the Roman Empire, specifically in an area kind of around modern-day Turkey. And what's happening is, is that they're in the midst of some trials, in the midst of suffering. Because their allegiance to Jesus as king, it was changing their lives in real, actual, noticeable ways. And their society as a whole, their their families, kind of mocked them and ostracized them um, for living in light of this new allegiance to a new king. And so in in light of this, uh, the suffering and the trials that are going on, Peter is writing to this group of struggling Christians. And He reminds them, he opens his letter with a reminder to them about the indicatives of the gospel, the truth about who God is and about who they are because of all that he has done. And what happens is he begins by reminding them about their identity. You see, identity is central to everything that happens in the book of Peter it's going to be peter's motivations it's going to be peter's reasoning for everything the identity that we have as god's people has everything to do with everything happening in the books of first and second peter and what we see in chap- what we saw in chapter 1 is that our new identity is god's elect his chosen people his chosen children That our election as his kids, what it does is it gives us a living and lasting hope. A hope that we're going to need if we're going to live as exiles in the midst of this world. And chapter 2 went on and he said that our identity as God's obedient children gives us new desires and new motivations to actually want to obey him. What I said last week is that uh, Peter doesn't say, become obedient children. He says, you already are obedient children because your faith is in Jesus, the one who was the obedient child on your behalf. And what that does is it fuels your longing to obey because you're seen as obedient even though you're not, and you long to live in light of that calling that you have. And so this morning, Peter is going to tell us, what we're going to see, what I want to show you, is that our new identity doesn't just bring us hope, it doesn't just uh, bring us new desires to obey. Our new identity as the people of God gives us a whole new purpose. And it's the declaration and the demonstration of the God who has saved us. Our calling, our reason for being, our purpose as God's people is to declare to the world the praises of the God who saved us and to demonstrate, to, to show the world what that God is like to, so they might see him, they might experience him, that we'll see in the end of verse 12, so they might actually come to know him. So the bottom line is that we are the people of God that have been set apart for the purposes of God, the declaration and the demonstration of God. Who he is and all that he's done so with that in mind let's read our passage in in uh, second peter first peter actually chapter two we'll pray and dive into our study this morning chapter two beginning in verse four so as you come to him the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by god precious to him you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through jesus For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who don't believe the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which also is what they were destined for, but you are a chosen people Dear friends, I urge you then as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul and to live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful uh, for our time together with you, for our time in your word. God, thanks that you would love us. Thanks that you would just cause your word to be kept so that we might know it and know you. So God, in our study this morning, God, I just pray that you would see, help us to see our new identity in you and our, our calling. God, most of all, I pray that you would cause us to see how good you are and all that you have done that it would fill us with just like great joy and a longing to give ourselves back to you. God, fill me with your spirit so that I'd be able to helpfully and and just you know, in a good way, God, that I would just be able to proclaim your word. And, and so, God, we just recognize that we need you to hear and we need you to speak. And so we ask that you would for our good and for your glory. We pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, as we study our passage this morning, um, what I want us to do is we're going to, first, we're going to take a look at what the passage has to say about this new purpose that we've been given. And then what I want to do is I want to go back in the passage, what I want to do is I want to show you how the identity that Peter articulates is directly linked with the purpose that we've been given. Our identity and our purpose, they are intrinsically intertwined in the gospel, and what I want to do is show you that. So first, our purpose, right? So when we're adopted by God into his family, we're given a new birth. That's all throughout language in chapter 1. And the idea of new birth is a new beginning. It's a, it's a new start. And with that came a whole new purpose. It's a new purpose that comes from being God's people. The Bible says, in 1 Peter also, before we were slaves to our passions and our desires, and we just lived for ourselves. And what Peter says, and what Ephesians says, and throughout the New Testament, what happens is, it says, you think it gives you life, but it's actually killing you. But now, it's through faith in Christ's sacrifice on, and his life and death on our behalf that we're called to a brand new purpose. 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 5 really articulates this clearly. We're no longer to live for ourselves, but to live for him who died for us. We see that in verse 5 here. We're called to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. In Romans 12, Paul really fleshes out what that means, what a spiritual sacrifice is. And he says in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And he's not talking about like drizzling yourself with some honey and some olive oil and jumping on a flame or something like that, right? He's talking about offering ourselves over to God. It's our whole selves, our bodies, our, the entirety of who we are. It's our actions, it's our attitudes, it's our behaviors, it's our motivations. And so when Peter says we're to offer living sacrifices that are acceptable to God, he's saying that we're, offered, we're, offered to, we're to offer our lives back to him, to give ourselves, all of who we are, back to him. Um, I think a lot of people uh, think that being a worship leader means that you stand up front in front of church and you sing songs, right? Or you play music or, or you're involved in this corporate singing event. And that's part of being a worship leader. But um, Paul and Peter would vehemently disagree with anyone who described a worship leader as somebody who leads music. Because as one pastor notes, worship is not a song Worship is a life that's given to God. It may be expressed in a song, and it is, but worship is ultimately expressed in the entirety of our lives, given over to God, given back to him. And so what he's saying is basically everyone is a worship leader, all of us, if we are our God's people, everyone is a worship leader because we, uh, the reason that that is, is because as worshipers of God, our lives, Peter calls us to live them out in front of other people so that they might worship the God that we worship. When I come up here and I stand in front of you with my guitar and I invite you, stand, come sing with me. What am I inviting to you to? I'm inviting you to praise and worship the God that we serve. That's what I'm inviting you into. And what Peter is saying is that every one of us is a worship leader because our lives are meant to be lived in such a way that they are an invitation to people to worship the God that we live for. Peter describes two components of kind of our worship leading, two components of our our offering of spiritual sacrifices. He says, one, In verse 9 he says that we're to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In verse 12 he adds so live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Our purpose as God's people is to lead the world in worship of him. Verse 12 ends the the, the point of it all. It's that Those who don't know him yet might worship him when he returns. Verse 9 tells us the first thing about our worship leading involves declaring him. It's real actual words proclaiming the truths about who god is what he's like the good news about the gospel and verse 12 adds that it's not just about declaring god it's about demonstrating him in the way that we live so that people might see and experience him and his kingdom and what he's like i think far too often christians uh, either take one approach or the other there are people that just love to declare about God, but they never demonstrate him to the world. These are the kind of people, they go door to door handing out tracts and a few days a year, or they post lots of things on social media about their faith. Or, um, but they're not actually involved in the lives of anyone that doesn't know Jesus yet. In fact, they often think that that's actually a really bad idea. And what happens He that they just end up confusing or alienating others because they never show people what God is like. They tell people about a God who is loving, but they never show people what that love looks like and how it's actually changing him. They tell people about how good it is to live in the kingdom of God, how much better it is, but they never invite people to experience what it looks like to live in light of the kingdom and to experience the kingdom declaration without demonstration is at best confusing and at worst it is hypocrisy that offends and alienates people who need jesus the most declaration without demonstration is not what we're called to but some take the opposite approach right and it's, I'm just going to live for Jesus. And people will just see that I'm different. And that's how people will come to know God. These are the people that love quoting Francis of Assisi. They say, preach the gospel always. And if necessary, use words. Just spoiler alert. He didn't actually say that. And his life would reveal that he doesn't think that in any way. The love they, these are the kind of people, they love to serve the poor. They love to volunteer at all kinds of community events. And they just try to live a really good example of a life. But they would never dare to actually explain it to people. They would never dare to actually tell people why. And don't hear me wrong it is not bad to serve. It is not bad to volunteer. It is not bad to live a good example. We are called to do that. But it's just not enough. People need to hear why you are doing what you're doing. They need to hear your motivations and your intentions. Everybody knows this. The same actions on the outside can have wildly different intentions and motivations. And if you never articulate the why behind what you're doing, you never get to the good news. You never get to the good news about the king who has changed you. You never get to the good news about why you do the things that you're doing. You see, demonstration without declaration is just religious moralism. Demonstration without declaration is just kind of religious moralism. At best, it's good deeds that make you and other people feel good. And at worst, what it communicates is that what matters absolutely most is the outward appearance, not the heart. It matters what you do, not what you believe. And that is a lie straight out of the pit of hell. It is opposed to the gospel in every possible so instead, we're called to be a people whose lives offered as sacrifices to God both declare who he is and demonstrate the king that we serve. Vanderstelt, Stelt, one pastor, he says it this way. He says, we're not called to live like immigrants who try to assimilate into a culture, nor are we called to live like tourists who just go through a culture, just passing through a culture. Instead, no, we're called to live as foreign ambassadors. We're called to live as people who care deeply about the people and the places where we live because our king cares more about those people and those places than we ever could. So like God told the exiles in Babylon to do in Jeremiah 29, we build houses and we settle down and we plant gardens because everyone knows if you plant a garden, you're going to be there forever. (laughs) Gardens are a terrible idea. Unless you're trying to make sure you stay somewhere, okay? We get involved in the city and in the people. We don't just set up a camp outside of the city. We move into the neighborhoods of the city. And we live to bless the people. Jeremiah 29, it says, pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray for the peace of the city, the shalom of the city, the good of the city. Pray for that, long for that. And so as exiles, we imitate what God told his people in Babylon to do, and we live for the good of the people that are here, and and for the good of the city in which we love and serve and which God has sent us to, and we do it so that they might taste and see that the Lord is good. They might experience him in his people living out lives that actually matter to them, that show them a different way of living, that reveal a different king and a different life altogether. The point of all of it is so that they one day, when Jesus returns, he is coming back, he is returning. And the point of all of it is so that when he returns, that they will gladly rejoice at his returning that when he comes they'll rejoice at they'll long for his coming this is the purpose that peter reminds us about that comes from our new identity we declare him with our words we demonstrate him with our lives we're called to be worship leaders we live and speak in such a way that invites others to worship the god that we live for so that they would be glad worshipers of him, children who eagerly await their father's return. I love, one of my favorite things as a dad is when I come home, my kids drop whatever they're doing and they come running to me to give me a hug. They love when I get home. That's, that's, what, that's what Peter is saying. We want people to know God as a good father so that when he comes, they'll come running for him that it'll be life-giving and joyful because they eagerly await his return. And I just want to say one more thing about this. This is incredibly life-giving for a lot of reasons, and high on that list is it means that our lives have significance and purpose despite our circumstances. It might be easy to think, oh, I'm just a stay-at-home mom, or I really hate my job, or I don't have a job, or maybe you depend so deeply on your job for your identity and purpose that the idea of retirement like scares the crap out of you. And the good news about the gospel is that none of those things hold your identity. None of those things offer you actual purpose. In fact, those things are only the venue. They're only the avenue by which you actually get to live out your purpose. Because no matter where you are or what you are doing, you have an incredible purpose. One that frees you from mundane things. One that frees you from idolatry and worship of other things. It is a significant assignment. It's an important mission. One worth giving your life for. One worth staying up late thinking about. One worth pouring your energies and your efforts into. It's the increase of the worship and the glory of God by multiplying those who sing his praises. You see, in the kingdom of religion, in the kingdom of the world, your identity, it comes from your doing. It comes from your actions, and it's always changing. It's always shifting, because you are always changing, and you are always shifting. But in God's kingdom, in the kingdom of the gospel, your identity is what determines your purpose. That is the best news of all. I want to show you three things about our identity that are linked to our purpose. Man, I hope this is good news to you. This is like really good news to me as I prep this week. Verse 9 and 10 really highlight this. Verse 9 begins, because you are a chosen people. Every people group has certain characteristics. They take pride in those things, and whatever the things that you think that make you distinctive, you take pride in, and then you tend to look down on other people, right? For example, if you're from Wisconsin, You take pride in the Packers, four time Super Bowl champions, a myriad of division and conference championships, a legacy of incredible players and coaches. And you tend to look down on places, maybe like Iowa, that don't have professional sports teams, or even worse, Minnesota, who might as well just give up on every other sport besides hockey. And you just have pity on Illinois, because God knows they need all the help that they can get. What happens is you look at the things that make you distinctive. And you take pride in those things, and you tend to look down on other people. And that's just a humorous example, but think about the real ways that that happens. Here's what's incredible about the gospel, though. Whereas the distinctives of other people groups lead to pride and division, the distinctives of God's people do not. In fact, they lead to a radical humility, a profound joy, because verse 10 points out, verse 10, you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You were once a people who had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Ephesians, before you were, aliens and strangers, dead in your sin, without hope, without God. Once you were far off. Over and over and over in the New Testament it says, but now. But now in Jesus, you who were far off, you've been brought near. You who are not a people, you've been made a people. You who were once not shown mercy, you have been shown mercy. You didn't do anything. Jesus did everything, and he made you alive when you were dead. He brought you near when you were far. He made you a people when you were not a people. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have. Peter here, he's quoting a passage from Hosea. Hosea is this Old Testament prophet that God, uh, he, he commanded, he instructed Hosea, go marry a prostitute who you know will be unfaithful to you and yet relentlessly love her and pursue her. At one point in the, in the story of Hosea, God instructs her to go and buy back his wife who has prostituted herself off to another man. And all of this, this whole example is that the people of God might see the kind of relentless, redeeming love and mercy that God has for a people who absolutely do not deserve it. Hosea 2, in the midst of their unfaithfulness, God promises that one day he'd show love to those who are not his loved ones one day he would call not my people you are my people they'll respond by saying you are our god it's a promise that god would buy them back it's a promise that he would redeem them and nowhere in those verses do you see any mention of their effort or their merit or their even repentance in it instead what you see is god's choice to love his choice to redeem his choice to buy back We've seen this already in 1 Peter. God's elect children from whom he chooses were not chosen because of anything special about them. We do not deserve to be chosen by God. We have not earned it in no way. Are we worthy of it? We don't don't deserve it at all. And the wonder of the gospel is not that some are chosen and some are not. The wonder of the gospel is that any are chosen at all. That's the whole point. It's the whole point because every Christian has the same incredible story. We were dead, alien enemies of God who, in spite of our rebellion, have been loved and adopted and bought into his family. Our debt was impossible to pay. It was an eternal debt to an eternal God. But God is rich in mercy, the Bible says, and he doesn't just remove our debt. In fact, what happens is our debt goes from an unpayable debt... 1 Peter chapter 1 reminds us that it goes from an unpayable debt to an inexhaustible inheritance. That's the richness of God's mercy poured out on us. It's the best news in all the world. And it's that unmerited, unearned mercy and love that we've been given, that's what fuels our declaration of the one who's called us out of darkness. Because we know we shouldn't have been called. There's nothing about us that deserved it or earned it, yet we've been given it so we like, love to proclaim it. And knowing that kind of love causes you to long for others to know him as you do. And, hear this, and it empowers you to actually demonstrate that love and that grace to others who don't deserve it. It is hard to forgive, especially when someone does not deserve forgiveness, when they have not asked for it. It's really hard to forgive unless you know that you were forgiven when you didn't deserve it and when you did not ask for it. It's hard to treat others in a way that they don't deserve to be treated until what you remember every day is that in the gospel, God treated you in a way you did not deserve to be treated. We didn't deserve grace. We didn't deserve mercy. We didn't deserve God's love or His adoption or His choosing. But we've been given it. He showed you his mercy when you didn't deserve it. And so Peter reminds them, you are a chosen people. You didn't deserve to be chosen so that in your identity as God's chosen people, you might be enabled and empowered to demonstrate and declare the wonder of him who saved you. Verse 9 goes on, and it calls us not just a chosen people, but a royal priesthood. When Peter's talking about a royal priesthood, he's not talking about the guys with collars. He's talking about normal people in the local everyday church. And so if Peter was standing here in my place, and he'd look out on you, if you are a follower of Jesus, then he would call you a priest. He would say you are a part of of the royal priesthood. And you're like, Peter is calling me a priest? Yes, he is. J.D. Greer, one pastor, he really helpfully points out what this means. He says, in the Old Testament, priests stood in the gap between man and God. And priests represented God to people. They spoke God's words to people so that they might hear them and know Him. They communicated to God's people who God was and what He was like. But priests not only represented God to people, they represented people before God. And they'd go before God on behalf of the people to offer sacrifices and to pray on their behalf. And Peter is saying, You and I are put in that position. We are priests who declare to others what God has said and who He is and what He's like. We declare and we say and we tell about who He is, all that He's done. We proclaim the good news about the gospel. And we are priests who go before God on behalf of others, praying for them, asking God, longing that he would save them, just as he saved us. So we are a royal priesthood. We are royal emissaries who declare the king to those around us, and we're ambassadors who represent people before the king, seeking their salvation and their good. Lastly, verse 9 says their identity as God's people is that of a holy nation, God's special possession. The calling of God's people has always been to holiness, and holiness is about being set apart. It's about being separate. Last week, I said that it's a separateness that's marked by purity. Too many Christians who rightly desire to be holy misunderstand what holiness is really about. They believe that the way you stay pure, the way you stay holy, is just by distancing yourself from impure people and impure things. And the problem with that thinking is that the ultimate example of holiness and purity that we have, the one that we're supposed to imitate, is Jesus himself. And Jesus' holiness was not marked by distance from impurity. His holiness No, instead he was a friend of sinners. He touched lepers. He healed the sick. In college, one of my uh, roommates, he uh, worked in a research lab one summer. And he worked in this clean room. And what he would say is that it would take forever to get sanitized before you could go into the clean room and work. And once you were in the clean room, you did not leave. Because it was like an hour and a half process to get out and get back in. And so you went to the bathroom before you suited up to get in there, right? He was sanitized. He took immense care to stay sanitized. Sometimes Christians talk about holiness like that. We've been sanitized, and now we just have to avoid contact with impure things. Instead, I just... J.D. Greer, one pastor, as I quoted before, he, he says, he just invites us to see holiness this way. Holiness means living like Jesus. It means that our separation is not isolation. It is contact without contamination. Our separation is not isolation, it is contact without contamination. And so the way that we live like Jesus, the way that we live as God's holy nation, is not by avoiding the impurity of the world, it's not by maintaining distance from sinners. You could go to a deserted island and never get away from sinners, because sin is not out there, sin is in here. Instead, one pastor notes in, his, in a book, He says, the beauty of the gospel is the only way to avoid sin is to stick close to Jesus. Sticking close to Jesus is what transforms our hearts to love what he loves and hate what he hates and go as far into culture and into relationships with lost people as Jesus did because we go with him. He goes on to say, we need to understand that God's mission is not just to create a moral people, but instead to create a movement of holy missionaries who are comfortable and truthful around lost sinners so that they would actually have an impact on their lives and on their cultures for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' great sermon on the mount, he describes the impact of his kingdom people. He describes what his holy nation is supposed to do. And he uses this complementary analogy. He talks about how we are to be salt and light. John Stott writes this about that analogy. He says, Jesus calls citizens of his kingdom to exert a double influence on living in the world. It is a negative influence as salt by influencing, by arresting its decay. And a positive influence as light by bringing light into the darkness. For it is one thing just to stop the spread of evil, but it is another to promote the spread of the truth and the beauty and the goodness of the gospel. There's no way that we can have that impact as salt and light if we are isolated from the impurity of the world. And we can't have that kind of impact if we are also full of sin and contamination. And so our ability to live out our identity as God's declarative people hinges on how we demonstrate his character as his holy people. After getting a chance to share the gospel with a friend in college, I remember one of the things he told me, he said, this just totally caught me off guard, he said, Brandon, I felt like I could actually talk to you about this stuff because you were the first person who said they were a Christian who what you said and what you did matched. I just remember like, wow. My friend was like watching my life. He was watching the things that I said. And the reason he felt like he was able to have a spiritual conversation with me about the gospel is because of my character as it matched what I said. And I looked back on that and I was like, you have not been looking that close, man, because like I have got some flaws. Yet remembering that story, God's really been convicting my heart this week and inviting me to ask the question about myself. What about my life right now is demonstrating to people the King that I worship? And am I in close enough relationships to people that don't know Jesus yet that they would actually get to see it? It's one thing to live a holy life, to demonstrate it to people who are already Christians. The calling is not to just live in an isolated bubble. The calling is to be a light that shines in the darkness. If you shine a flashlight at the sun, it doesn't do anything. It's only good in the midst of the darkness. God's been inviting me in the midst of that to remember my identity in him, to keep looking to him as the king, to keep asking and praying, God, as king, what are you like how can I reflect you into the lives of my neighbors and my friends and my, the people that are around me that were, Hannah and I are praying for and longing to share you with? You see, God's given us a new identity, his chosen people, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, and it's our new identity that gives us a new purpose. It's the declaration and the demonstration of the God who has saved us. And so the question is this, how do you actually live in light of that new identity? It's one thing to know what's true. It's a totally different thing to live in light of what's true. And the passage answers that question too. In verse 4 it says, as you come to him, the living stone. You are being, you like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. Peter says that the way you grow up into your identity and purpose is by continually coming to Jesus, the living stone. As you come, it is an ongoing, active word. It's as you come and keep coming to him the living stone, then you are being given life from that living stone. You come to him for the life that you need. Stop going to empty wells that don't satisfy. You come to him for the hope that you need. Stop numbing the pain with other distractions so that you can actually focus and enter the battle. You come to him to be reminded about your identity without which your purpose can never be life-giving. It can only be a crushing boulder. You keep coming to him. You stop looking for anything better. He is what you need. And as you come to him, the living stone, three things will happen. You will increasingly realize how desperately you need his love and mercy and grace. And you'll start to compare yourself to him instead of other people, and increasingly what you will see is the depths of the wickedness and sin in your heart. And you will increasingly see how desperate you are for him. But the beauty of the gospel is at the same time when you're coming to that living stone, you'll be reminded about how greatly he has met your need. And the more you realize the magnitude of your need, the more incredible the gospel will become because your identity doesn't change. You just realize how much more you needed a new identity. And what will happen is you'll be increasingly filled with a joy and a gratitude and a love for Him, and you'll grow in confidence in your identity, and you'll grow in your ability to live out your identity as you keep being reminded about it from Him. And lastly, you will become like Him. The pastor says. As living stones, as you come to the living stones, you like living stones will be built up. As you come to him, you'll become more and more like him. Your life like his will be marked by a lasting, life-giving quality that others need. There's one thing I just really need to point out before we end here. This growing up into our identity, this the purpose that our purpose to declare and demonstrate. I just need you to hear this. It cannot be done alone. It cannot be done alone. It must happen as the people of God, not the person of God. The passage says that you're being built into a spiritual house, not a spiritual brick. All these living stones are being put together into a spiritual house. One commentator writes it this way, the imagery of living stones being built into a single unit implies that the significance and purpose of the individual Christian cannot be realized apart from community with other believers. Another commentator adds, commitment to God's people is not an optional advantage to be chosen or to be ignored like membership in a social club. It is the deep calling of every christian that's why we stress at river city becoming a member if not here then somewhere becoming a member of a church to be involved but not to to be involved but not committed it's to say that you'd rather not be part of the family it's to say that you're fine with being a perpetual guest because when things get hairy, you want to be able to get out and there will always be parts to any family that drive you crazy my family, it's totally true, and my mom is listening to this. Everyone's family has stuff about them that drive them crazy. But it doesn't mean that you don't want to be a part of the family. And it doesn't mean that you don't want to be a part of continuing to help it grow and become what it needs to be. The bottom line is this. We're called to be part of a spiritual house that God is building, not just visitors in a hotel. This is also why we play such a high emphasis on missional small groups. Small groups are where the mission actually gets lived out. We can declare God on he- here on Sunday, and every Sunday I do. But it is really hard for me to demonstrate him to you here on Sunday, in an hour, with just here in front of you. Instead, the demonstration of the good news about the gospel It comes in the everyday stuff of life. And it happens as we live on mission together. We've been praying to get to know your our neighbors for almost a year, and they are crazy busy people. But in less than 20 minutes after meeting them, Dustin and Caitlin had already set up a tea time with them at the golf course. I've been like 40 invitations. 20 minutes later, Dustin has a tea time. I'm like, how is this possible? How does this happen? You cannot reach your neighbors by yourself. You cannot reach your coworkers by yourself. You need a community that is doing the same. You do not have everything your friends need, but the spiritual house of God does. The witness of a single person is small, but the witness of a community is powerful. Man, good friends of ours, Andy and Alyssa Fox, they started uh, investigating Jesus and looking into just following him and spiritual things. And one of the things Andy often said in his journey as he was searching for Jesus, one of the things he often said is that the most impactful thing was the community and experiencing the community of God's people. He said, I've never experienced anything like that before. It was good news to him. It was life-giving to him. He was experiencing the community of God's people as we loved and served them, as we helped them move, as we did marriage counseling, as we showed them what Jesus was like and what his kingdom was like. And it was different than what he had experienced or seen before. But it is important. I just need you to hear this. We didn't just demonstrate the gospel to Andy and Alyssa. We declared it to them as well. We said the reason we live this way is because of Jesus. The reason we love you, the reason we are serving you It's not because you deserve it or we deserve it. It's because Jesus loved and served us. He's the reason behind everything that we're doing. And the invitation is to have faith in him. You cannot live out your identity and your purpose without the people of God. There is such good news in that because it is a reminder that you are not alone. You're not alone. And you were never intended to be alone. The mission is really exhausting if you are doing it by yourself. But it is life-giving when you do it with others. It is life-giving when you do it with others. Just a few nights ago, we got together to spend some time praying for our friends and neighbors and coworkers. Man, I cannot tell you how excited I was after that hour praying together. Like, there's this huge chart all these people that God's been putting in the people's lives, the people that live in our church. And I've been making this digital thing that shows me how to pray about all that kind of stuff. And so I can pray for all the relationships that are happening amongst things that are going on. I can't tell you how excited I was after hearing like, how I could be praying about the mission happening in other people's lives as we brainstormed and thought about what it could look like for us to join each other as we support each other being sent on mission, as we saw some of these connections being connected with people that we didn't know that were already connected we saw Jesus, you're sending us together, not alone. Man, that was so good. It was so encouraging. One commentator I read this week, he referenced a story about a Spartan king who boasted to a visiting monarch about the walls of Sparta. And the visiting king looked around, and he could see no walled city, and he asked, where are these renowned walls of Sparta? And the Spartan king replied, He pointed to his army and he said, these are the walls of Sparta, every man a brick. And so we too as the people of God, everyone a living stone, are being built into the house of God, being built into his family who imitates him and reflects him back to the world. Our identity as God's chosen people, as His royal priesthood, as His holy nation, leads to our life-giving purpose, the declaration and the demonstration of the greatness of our King. And it's a calling of everyone else to come, to come and to worship the one who called us out of darkness into His wonderful light. In a few moments, we're going to take communion. And communion is a, a picture, it's a reminder about that gospel. And the bread reminds us of Jesus' body, which was broken for us as he lived the life we couldn't live. And the drink reminds us of Jesus' blood, which was shed for us as he died the death that we should have died in our place. Communion doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. The only thing that can change your status or your standing with God is faith in Jesus. That's it. Instead, communion is an opportunity for us to remember the gospel. It is an opportunity for us to come the living stone, to be reminded of the eternal life-giving power of Jesus that resurrected and redeemed us into new identity and new purpose. And the bread and the juice are in the back. You just take the bread and you dip it in the juice. And as we sing and as we worship and remember the gospel together in song, if you've put your trust in Jesus, if you are a member of God's chosen people, not because of anything you have done, not because of anything that you have merited or you have earned, but because of a faith in everything that Jesus has done for you, then whenever you are ready, go back and take communion. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. We'd encourage you though if your identity is not yet in Jesus if your identity is not yet as his chosen people his royal priesthood his holy nation then we just invite you to take off on to hold off on taking communion and instead I would invite you to come to the living stone come to the true bread of life receive him before you receive the elements let's pray God, thank you so much for you. Thanks for all that you've done. Thanks for your redeeming and renewing work. Thanks for your great mercy that's been showed to us. God, and thank you that you give us a new identity as your chosen people that we do not deserve. And you invite us to be a royal priesthood for you. God, who represent you to people and people to you. And God, you call us to be a holy nation. You say we are your holy nation. We are set apart for you. So God, we long that you would empower us with the gospel to come to you, the living stone, to receive the life that we need and to live and and worship you with our lives. And we're so grateful the gospel says that that's who we are and so we live in light of it. Amen.